everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Whether you're a guest or regular attender, we're starting a brand new series this weekend called The First 50 Years Are Always the Hardest, and it's about marriage. And we thought it'd be great to kick off the series by doing a love and marriage show. So as you were coming in this morning, we actually randomly selected couples, some who have been married a little longer others who have been married a little less. In fact, I'm going to introduce them to you, but before I do, give them a big hand, would you? Awesome. So we're going to ask your name and how long you've been married. Um, David Nadu, and almost a year now. June 8th will be a year. Almost a year. And your name? Taylor. Taylor. Welcome, guys. Thanks for saying yes. <clears throat> And your name, and I'm always loving asking the guy, how long you've been married? <laughs> uh, my name is Bill, and we've been married nine years. Nine years. Liz. And Liz. Fantastic. And one last couple here. Your name, and how long you've been married? Uh, Jim Ream, 45 years in January. Fantastic. Sue. 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 And I'm curious, I've been married 35 years, and Roxanne says they're 33 of the happiest years of her life. And so I know probably a couple missing years there somewhere. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're kind of revealing how no matter how long you've been married, it doesn't necessarily get easier. So we're going to ask the ladies to go to a soundproof room off stage, and we're going to keep the guys here to ask some tough questions too, all right? You ready? Let's go. All right, as soon as they get in that room and the door is closed, they'll give us a thumbs up on the video. But I want you to know that um, so far we've been having a lot of fun with this. And it's our goal that through this game show, we will see at least one divorce. It should be a really fun, fun time. Uh, and what I'm going to do is, because Jim and Sue have been married the longest, I'm going to, um, it's kind of an unfair advantage. So I'm going to start with Jim. And uh, we're going to ask three questions and then one tie-breaking question, a fourth question that we'll only get to with the ladies if there's a tie. So, Jim, here's the first one. What size shoe does your wife wear? Nine. Size nine. I sure hope they're that large, because if they're not, you're in serious trouble. All right. Uh, Bill, what size shoe does your wife wear? Ten. Ten. Okay, if we get over to David and he says 13, this is going to be really interesting. David, what size shoe does your wife wear? I'm going to say eight and a half. All right, eight and a half. There we go. Uh, coming to you, Bill, for the second question. What is your wife's favorite movie? <laughs> I've never heard of that movie. <sighs> 16 Candles. Sixteen Candles, uh, along with The Breakfast Club or something like that, right? All right. Uh, David, what is your wife's favorite movie? The Holiday. The Holiday. Fantastic. A little Cameron Diaz action going there and Jude Law, right? Uh, what is your wife's favorite movie, Jim? The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz. That's like just three or four years old, isn't it, Jim? Okay, Fantastic. <laughs> and it's in color. Yeah, that's <laughs> panorama vision. All right, that's, that's great. All right, David, what item of clothing 
would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? And before you answer, guys, I'm going to show you the green room. They're in there having a good time. They can't hear a word that you're saying, right? They're laughing now, but depending on this answer, they may not be laughing later, okay? So what item of clothing, David, would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? Uh, my tank tops. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I got rid of mine a long time ago. Has nothing to do with Roxanne, though. It has everything to do with physique. All right. Uh, Jim, what item of clothing would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? My bathrobe. <laughs> your bathrobe. Just curious, how old is it? Uh, probably 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Hope it's been washed. All right. Um, so, what item of clothing would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? Cut-off shirts. Cut-off shirts. Like cut-off sleeves or midriff? <laughs> okay. Very good. Got it. Uh, and now this is the tiebreaker question, okay? And, David, I'm going to start with you. Um, and you can go for the gusto with this because if there's no tie, they'll never hear your answer, all right? Complete this sentence. And I do recommend being very cautious. I would most like to see my wife take a course in... Culinary arts. Ooh. That's, a, that's a classy way of saying she's a horrible cook. Is that what we're saying? All right, fantastic. Jim, complete this sentence. I would most like to see my wife, Sue, take a course in... Psychology. <laughs> because you need so much counseling? Is that okay? Very good. And last but not least, Bill, uh, I would most like to see my wife take a course in... It might be a stretch, but I'm going to go with golf. Ah, that's so safe. You wimp. <laughs> all right. Uh, that's, she's a good cook already. Very good. All right, we're going to bring the ladies on in. Thanks, guys, for your questions. As the ladies come in, give them a big hand, would you? Good job, guys. Awesome. All right, ladies, we actually took a look into you in the green room, and we saw you smiling. Um, I'm sorry that the smiles are going to stop right now. We've heard the answers, and you're in trouble. Ah, So, Sue, we started with you guys. We felt like after the longest marriage that you should, you know, have an unfair advantage. You should know everything about each other, right? Yeah, okay. So here was the very first question we asked. We asked Jim, what size shoe does Sue wear? And he said... Nine. Nine! Yes, he did. Very good. And so, we asked Bill, what size shoe does Liz wear? And he said... Ten. Ten! And he did. That's unbelievable, actually. I think David's going to lose on this one. All right. <laughs> We asked David, what size shoe does your wife wear, Taylor? What did he say? Seven. Ooh. No. He said 13. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. I'm just kidding. He said eight and a half. All right. Very good. That's in the record books. Now, coming to you, Liz, uh, we asked Bill, what is your wife's favorite movie? What do you think he said? Pretty in Pink. 
Pretty in Pink. So close. It's the, it's the same genre. He didn't say Breakfast Club, but he did say 16 Candles. There you go. Okay. All right, Taylor, we asked David, what is your wife's favorite movie? What do you think he said? I have like five favorite movies, so this is going to be hard. Frozen? Frozen, so close. Blake, what did he say? The Holiday. The Holiday. He said you thought Jude Law was hot. No, he didn't actually say that, but I told you I'm, I'm aiming for a divorce, right? I'm trying, I'm trying. So, Sue, we asked Jim, what's your wife's favorite movie? What do you think he said? Wizard of Oz. Yes, he did. Very good. That's terrific. All right. So, Taylor, um, we came to David and we said, what item of clothing would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? What do you think he said? Tank tops. Yes, he did. (laughs) All right. Same question we asked Jim. What item of clothing would Sue like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? And he said... His robe. Yes, he did. (laughs) He he also told us it was 25 years old or something like that. Yeah, at least. Okay, so Liz, we did the same thing with Bill. What item of clothing would your wife like you to eliminate from your wardrobe? And he said... Those shirts that he rips the sleeves off. That's exactly what he said. (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. Uh, We did ask a fourth question, but I don't think we're going to have to go to it. Is there a tie, Blake? No. Okay, so um, you're going to have to watch the video of the service to find out the other ones for the ladies. But uh, the winning couple was... Our longest married couple. The longest married couple. Jim and Sue, give them a big hand. We have a gift for all of you. Uh, For those of you who didn't win, you're certainly not losers. We appreciate you doing that. We're going to give you a shirt, a Northridge shirt. And thank you so much for playing. And, uh, Sue, we're going to hand you this bag. And inside it is, there's a thermos, there's a T-shirt. There's a book that inspired me, actually, to do this series. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller in there. We should actually be giving the marriage book to these guys. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, we, the faux pas on ours. Uh, and then there's a group on. It's a really cool thing. Two movie tickets, $100 to a restaurant for you to guys have a dinner with, and then an 8 by 10 photo canvas. So have a great time with that. Thanks for playing. Thanks, everybody. Give them a hand as they make their way off. Well, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys playing along with that. We, 
We're in a new series, and it's on marriage. You know, the first 50 years are always the hardest. And I have to tell you, I wasn't planning a a marriage series. I wasn't even planning a relationship series following Easter this year. Uh, Last fall, I kind of decided on a different direction and started engaging preparation for it. But in February of this year, I was reading a book by a pastor in New York City. His name's Tim Keller, and the book is titled The Meaning of Marriage. And, and I have to tell you, I, I mean, I've been married 35 years myself. I've done a ton of teaching on marriage and counseling on marriage and those kind of things and been counseled by my wife primarily uh, a lot on marriage. And, um, and yet this book hit me in an all-new, fresh way. And it wasn't because it's all-new information. In fact, I think it was because it was an authentic and fresh presentation of some of the basics that we can forget and move beyond. And... And Tim's book just inspired me to change my entire direction and, and come back and do a marriage series that we're starting this weekend. Because I, I started realizing as I was reading this book over and over again, first of all, I need to be reminded and refreshed even after all the years I've had in marriage. I'm a guy after all, right? And I need to be reminded of the basics that are going to help Roxanne and myself experience the best marriage. But it's more than that, because I look out over the landscape of our world and I realize that marriage is faltering in our world these days. And many marriages are failing. And I know many of you have experienced um, a marriage that broke apart and the wounds that come with that. And I, I just need to tell you right up front, this series isn't to make someone who experienced a failed marriage feel worse. That's not the goal at all. It's to talk about what marriage can be, but to be honest about how hard it is as well. And if you have failed in your marriage, I I want you to know you're in good company because even those of us are still together, we have failed time and time again in our marriage. And another thing is that even if we do stay together as couples, we have failed profoundly and significantly in very self-destructive ways in other areas of our lives. So, This isn't about beating anyone up. This is about saying this is what marriage could be, but this is what we have to go through if we're going to get there. And and while I was reading this book in particular, one of the things that really hit me about my need to go back to some of the basics and talk about marriage was um, I got news that a young man who's very, very close to our family um, found out that his wife was having um, multiple affairs, and she ultimately came to him and said, that she wanted out, that he wasn't making her happy anymore and he wasn't the right person for her anymore and, and, and they're going through this, this tragedy of a divorce. And, and I have to tell you, I take that personally. I, I, I feel a great responsibility as someone who stands up and talks about God's truth and what life can be if we have God in our lives. I, I, I have a huge burden to try and help people understand marriage better, to, to experience it in better ways. And, and I want you to know, I believe that better understanding marriage is important for all of us, even for those of you who are single. I know we have a lot of single people here, and, you know, they don't look forward to a marriage series, but I'm going to tell you, marriage is just another relationship. It just happens to be a relationship that's as intense as you can get because you're in close proximity and there's no escape and you're, you're there with each other all the time and it's 24-7 and there's not breathing room. And, and so if, if the principles of marriage relationships being built properly 
can work in that context, man, these principles can apply to every relationship in life. And so if you're single, all you do is take the word marriage out and you apply it to your friendships and your work relationships. And it can be very, very beneficial to you as well. Better understanding marriage can help you. And doesn't matter how long you've been married. Maybe like Jim and Sue, you've been married quite a while and, and you, you think, well, I really don't need this. Well, yes, you do. When we, when we came up with the series title, The First 50 Years Are Always the Hardest, I had a, a guy who's been volunteering here for years. He's a, a stalwart here at Northridge Church, and he came to me and he goes, I don't really like that title. I said, yeah, I know. It's usually one word, two words. He says, that's not what I don't like about it. He says, I've been married 53 years, and I'm telling you, it doesn't get easier after 50. And so I said, okay then. Uh, guess we should have said the first 70 years or something like that, but... But the truth is, we can all benefit from understanding marriage better. And this weekend, we're going to start out by just being honest with the fact that it's not easy. And I think the fact that it's not easy surprises some people. As I've been putting this weekend's talk together, I've come to realize that marriage is a lot like climbing Mount Everest. It it takes time, a lot of time. It takes preparation, a lot of preparation. It takes significant work. I mean, some of the most significant work you'll ever put in is required to climb Mount Everest. It takes help from others. You can't do it alone. And bottom line is, it takes sheer guts to climb Mount Everest. Because as we've seen lately in the news, there, there are tons of risks in climbing Mount Everest. The risks that are beyond human control. And with all the preparation and with all the right people with you, things can still happen that can, you know, take your life, that can ruin the journey. And the same is true with marriage. But from what I've read about climbing Everest, even with all the work and even with all the risk and even with all the harsh elements, the journey is awesome. And, and they say, when you get there, when you get to the summit, it's worth everything. I mean, you're breathing a rarefied form of air. It's, it's something that so few people have experienced. Well, I have to tell you, I've never climbed Everest, but I've been on the journey of marriage for a long time. And I believe the same that is true with those who take the journey up Everest is true with those of us who take the journey of marriage. It can be treacherous. It can be extremely difficult. There can be times when you are in such agony that you just want out. But at the same time, it can be one of the most beautiful and awesome experiences in life and totally worth it. I keep trying to tell Roxanne this, and someday she'll believe me. Here's the reality that I want you to see. A healthy and happy marriage is profoundly beautiful but hard. A healthy and happy marriage is profoundly beautiful but hard. And I want to pick that apart a little bit. It's beautiful because there's no relationship on earth that comes with greater potential for gain, for reward. In fact, look at how God describes marriage when he, when he creates it, when he makes the first marriage and he defines it. He, he says in Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I mean, think about it. It's not good for the man to be alone. Alone, the man will wear tank tops and cut off T-shirts. I mean... It's not good for the man to be alone. So God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. 
And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Marriage is profoundly beautiful when it's healthy and happy. God speaks of an intimacy that is something that most people can only dream about. I'll only dream about what the summit of Mount Everest is like. I'll only dream about that. I'll never get to see it outside of pictures. And some people can only dream about the intimacy that can come in a healthy and happy marriage that has endured over time. But God says, you get to become one, two people, becoming so interwoven into their lives that they're one, able to be totally vulnerable with no risk and able to be totally open and no shame. It's just it's beautiful, but hard. God says it's beautiful because of the support. I'll make a helper suitable. I mean, someone to partner in life with in every way. When one is weak, the other can be strong. When one falls, the other can lift them up and, and support. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And, of course, those of you who aren't married can experience intimacy, just not to the level of marriage and support, just not to the level of, of marriage. And I read what God says about marriage in Genesis 2 there, and, and man, it just makes me think, joy! I mean, look at it. It says the man and his wife were both naked. Seriously. I've had more coffee than you, obviously, today. Um, but, but it's really speaking of a relationship where intimacy and support does bring about joy and satisfaction and contentment and peace. And, and then it says it's beautiful because it makes life easier. It's more manageable, two are better than one. It's more meaningful, it's more fun. And if you're not married, you can do that and you need to pursue that through other relationships. But in marriage, we have this person that can really help lift the load. But I want you to know the other side of the coin is true as well. Because though it has the greatest potential for gain, it's beautiful, it's also hard because there's no relationship on earth that has the greater potential for loss to cause us to take a fall. And the sad reality is that a lot of people choose to avoid marriage because of the risk side of it, you know, that it really could be painful. In fact, look what happened in the very first marriage, Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She disobeyed God's clear command. She used free choice to push God out and to make herself the center of the world. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, and so he disobeyed. Together, they disobeyed. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. There goes the joy. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then God says, what are you doing hiding? What happened? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And there you have the hard side of the relationship, because there's no relationship on the planet where conflict can erupt in such damaging ways. I mean, there you are in close quarters, one another, and conflict erupts. Blame and war. There's no relationship on earth where, where you can get a higher level of spark. And, you know, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron, and that's how relationships are. And in the context of a, a marriage, though friction and tension can be good and help us to become the right people, that friction and tension can become very dysfunctional and very unhealthy, and it can just start a fire that destroys the relationship, and that's what makes marriage so difficult. The sparks can fly. 
It can lead to unbelievable sorrow, and some of you have really lived this out. I mean, all of us have sorrowful and hurtful and painful times in marriage, but it can lead to some of the worst pain and loss imaginable. It's hard. And it can make life harder. Though God gave us marriage so that life could be easier, two is better than one, if we don't do it right, it can make life harder. It can become like living with the enemy. In fact, there's a guy in the Bible, he was a really great guy, and he did a lot of things well, but good, bad things happen to good people sometimes, and man, his life fell apart. I mean, his, his whole world fell apart. His kids were killed, his homes were blown away, his, his, all of his treasure was taken away, and the only thing he was left with was his wife. And I mean, even his friends kind of betrayed him, and he was just in a mess, in a world of hurt. It's when marriage could really express itself in profound beauty. And his wife came to him and said, Hey, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, that's someone you want to be married to, right? Should have written a marriage book, Curse God and Die. Seriously? I know what Job was thinking. Why didn't she die too? You know, I mean, that would have been good. Make life a little bit more enjoyable for me. It was just not good. It, It can make life harder. And so here we have this thing this marriage thing that when healthy and happy can be profoundly beautiful but so seldom is it healthy and happy and so it can be unbelievably hard and even the process of becoming healthy and happy is hard and as I analyze this thing it's it's because of the problems we face in building marriage I mean, there are all kinds of problems that we confront in marriage. And and I'll just name three. There are more, but let me give you three. And two of them result from the culture we live in. Our, Our culture's prevailing views of marriage make marriage far more difficult. I mean, our our culture has a view of marriage that's very negative, and when you're in the context of marriage, I mean, and you're experiencing some of the difficulty, all those negative views can start heaping up on you to where you start agreeing with culture and say it's not worth the effort. Because we're in a culture that basically has seen so much failure in marriage and the younger generation in particular, so many of you have experienced the failure of your own family setting, your parents divorced and and all of that, that, that a lot of people have just concluded wrongly, but they've concluded that marriage is just not worth the effort. Most end in failure. And even those who stay together, it doesn't lead to greater happiness necessarily. I mean, we've all known people who've stayed married forever, but my gosh, they're miserable. In fact, you remember the couple, right? The the older couple, they've been married forever, and so someone wanted to know the secret. How did you stay married so long? And they said, well, um, nice walk, beautiful meal, candlelit dinner. She goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. That's how we, uh, we do it. It's like... It's how a lot of people just don't think you can have happiness in the context of marriage, but the statistics show very differently. They, they tell us that, when, and I'm not talking about statistics from Jesusville here, right? I'm not talking about churchified statistics. I'm talking about secular statistics. You know what they say about happiness? They say married people are way happier statistically than unmarried people. And so the view is wrong. And yet we all have unhappy moments, and we're in those unhappy moments. We go, oh, yeah, marriage is making me unhappy, and that's it, and I'd be happier if I was single. And, and, but it, it makes it harder because it's wrong. In fact, the stats say 
that 61 to 62 percent of all married people, about two-thirds of all married people, claim not just to be happy, not just that it's okay, but they claim that they are very happy, 61 to 62 percent. Now, that doesn't mean they've always been happy, but they're very happy. And marriage is not ruining their chance at happiness. In fact, it's enhancing it. And this one blew me away. We all know, I mean, anyone who's been married knows that there are unhappy seasons in marriage. Roxanne's has lasted 35 years. I don't know how long yours has, but I mean, we all have seasons of unhappiness. But we're living in a day in which, because people think marriage is making them unhappy, that you can't be happy in marriage, that when they go through a season of unhappiness, they go, yep, it's happening to us too. And what's the, what's the reaction our culture has? Well, just divorce them. Just divorce her. Just let's get out. And a lot of people do. But you know what statistics tell us? This is crazy. This surprised me. Statistics tell us that two-thirds, that's over 66%, two-thirds of all couples that are unhappily married in unhappy marriages become happily married, happy in marriage, after five years. If one thing is true, what do you think that one thing is? They don't divorce. And yet too many are throwing it away during these unhappy seasons not knowing that their best chance to experiencing happiness, the profound beauty of climbing the Mount Everest of relationships, marriage, is staying together. They chuck it, and they think by leaving this person who's making them unhappy, they'll find the right person and be happy. But statistics don't tell us that's a reality. Every single time we try and start over, it becomes less likely we'll find happiness in that relationship. And so staying married is a big deal. Marriage does not necessarily lead to unhappiness. We can go about it the right way. And just so you know, that stat about unhappiness becoming happiness in, in five years, it's from the University of Chicago. And so, I mean, it's not being made up and contrived by some spiritual people. It's just crazy. The views of our culture has marriage all wrong, but they're keeping a ton of people from experiencing the profound beauty of marriage. And then there's another problem, and it stems from culture. It stems from our culture's prevailing philosophies of marriage. And our, our culture has some messed up philosophies of marriage. And remember, the culture is a product of us and what we in mass do. And I want you to think about it. What does our culture value most? I mean, what does our culture, in our world, what do people value most? It's really a threefold answer. In our culture, people value most individual freedom. I want my individual freedom. They value autonomy, which is self-sufficiency, self-determination, being able to do things on their own, and they, they really highly value personal fulfillment. I mean, I want my job to leave personal fulfillment. I want my relationships. I want my faith to lead to personal fulfillment. It's all about personal fulfillment. But here's what you need to know. Those are horrible values when it comes to building a healthy and happy marriage because if you're going to have a healthy and happy marriage, it demands that we sacrifice all those values of our culture. You can't build a marriage based upon the pursuit of personal freedom. Here's the deal, babe. Just stay out of my way and we'll be healthy and happy. It just doesn't work that way. 
You can't build a marriage based upon autonomy. Look at I'm self-sufficient. I don't need you. I'm going to self-determine. I don't want you to butt into my life. Oh, yeah, autonomy is going to lead to a healthy marriage. No, it's not. And personal fulfillment. Are you kidding me? If your number one priority is personal fulfillment that leaves the other person out and the only reason they exist is to make you fulfilled and the minute they stop fulfilling you, they're gone. Our culture's philosophies and values are destroying the ability for us to experience the profound beauty of marriage. And it's really making it more difficult. Tim Keller really nailed this when he said, marriage used to be about us. But today, marriage is about me. And he defined it as me marriage. And it flows right out of the values and the philosophies of our culture. Me marriage doesn't work. It doesn't work. It ends in one way, in brokenness. And let me give you two ideas that show you that people are into me marriage. The, The first idea, I mean, it's a perfect picture. I know you've heard about it. Have you ever heard the term soulmate? Ever heard that? Soulmate. Oh, my gosh. Let's watch The Notebook. You know, my soulmate. How about Jerry Maguire? You complete me. You completely suck. That's what you do. I mean, it's like the soulmate. Soulmate. There are all kinds of problems with soulmate. You know what the... You know what the definition of soulmate is? I mean, when you really pull it apart, what people are saying when you define, what do you mean by soulmate? You're looking for your soulmate. You want to marry your soulmate. You're waiting for your soulmate. What are, they, what are you talking about? Here's what it involves. Someone who looks just like they need to look to make us happy. Someone who has the right stuff sexually. By the way, just FYI, that's got nothing to do with the soul, you know. Uh, but, they, you know, they got the sexual stuff going, man. Oh, my gosh, they turned me on. The other thing about soulmate. Is And yes, I'm a pastor and I just said, turn me on. I just said it. I said it out loud and live and for real. I'm not a Roman Catholic priest. Okay, never mind. Um, And what they mean by soulmate is that, and by the way, can I just say I was really disappointed this last night. I stayed up all, all night waiting for an honorable mention as a saint and no one ever named me. It was just crazy. Irritating. Um... (laughs) Another thing about soulmate is that we think that this person will be perfectly compatible with us. That's what we think of soulmate. They'll be perfectly compatible. Now, this idea of soulmate comes with some problems. Uh, Here's the first problem. Even if you find this person, first of all, they don't exist. But even if you find this person, they're going to change. There goes your soulmate. And by the way, what is a soulmate? Someone you met in Australia or something? You know, hey, mate, uh, it's crazy. Soulmate. By the way, I've had far too much coffee. I'm going to tell you right now. (laughs) There's a second problem with soulmate. Perfect compatibility doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. You want want perfect compatibility? Get a blow-up doll. Because you're not going to get it from a real person. I mean... The only way you could get perfect compatibility is with, with a person who totally acquiesces to you, never challenges you, never asks anything of you, just bows down and calls you blessed, kind of like Roxanne does with me. I mean, that's kind of how that goes, right? They never push you. They never seek to change anything about you. That doesn't exist. 
And, and you know what the third problem with soulmate is? It's not biblical. God never said you should be looking for your soulmate. He's your soulmate. He's the one that can complete you. He's the one that can fill you. He's the one that can sculpt you on the inside. He's the one that can replace what's missing in your life, not the person. And the whole idea of soulmate is messed up. And I get it. Some of you people love to watch movies and read books about soulmates. You might as well watch Frozen, friends, because it's just not a reality. And this goes hand in hand with another just unbelievable problem when it comes to our culture's philosophies and views of marriage. And it's the picture we have of our ideal spouse. And by the way, just as full disclosure, right? Um, Roxanne, we've been married 35 years. She, she wanted to marry a tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, guitar-playing singer. Strike, 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 strike. I mean, we have these ideal pictures of what a spouse should be. She finally found out that I was perfection, not that other, but that's a whole different thing too. You know what our picture is? Uh, The ideal spouse is beautiful, sexually satisfying, intellectually satisfying. If I could just give an aside here, really Sexually satisfying, intellectually satisfying, make your choice. I don't think they come together. That's just a thought. Emotionally satisfying, fun, common interests, supportive of all my dreams and goals, and will let me be myself. The only problem with that view of an ideal spouse is the other person has the same view. They want you to be totally supportive of their dreams and their goals and let them be themselves. Which means you might as well live in different places on different continents. Because you're going to push against each other, which immediately eliminates the idea that they're your soulmate. Both of these require that you marry a person who makes you happy. But since they're doing the same thing, you're going to create tension and conflict that's negative, and it doesn't work, and the end is obvious. Me marriages don't work. They just don't. You see, marriage is about, let's be honest, marriage, and this is why it's hard, is about two flawed people becoming one. Two flawed people, two messed up people becoming one. And if two flawed people are going to become one, that takes both people changing a lot and for the rest of their lives. Which leads to one last weird philosophy I need to tell you our culture has. Our culture believes that if you find this ideal spouse, if you find this soulmate, that marriage will come naturally. You'll just be one. Beautiful. I have this told to me a lot. I'm married to the wrong person. It's not supposed to be this hard. I'm married to this person. It's supposed to be easier than this. I'm married to the wrong person. It's supposed to come naturally. What garbage dump did you get that information from? I mean, it's like climbing Mount Everest. I've already given the metaphor. Imagine. I mean, think about who can climb Mount Everest. Imagine a guy saying, I'm going to climb Mount Everest this year. It's my goal. Wearing his T-tops, his cutoffs. 350 pounds strong saying I eat McDonald's morning, noon, and night. 
and I live life in my boxers. You know, that guy's not going to climb Mount Everest. That guy will die on the trip to Mount Everest, right? (laughs) It's hard to do something great like that. There's never been a great professional athlete who said, boy, it was really easy to become this good. You know, the greatest athletes are the ones that work the hardest. No great novelist has ever said, I just vomit words out in the morning and they just are so beautiful. Save the big pieces for me. No, they don't say that. It's not easy to be a novelist. The big pieces thing should have been left out. At any rate, here's the thing. It is not easy to become great at anything. It is not easy to experience the rarefied oxygen of greatness in anything. It's not easy in marriage. And let me just tell you something about marriage. Marriage is the greatest experience in life when it's done right. It's going to be the hardest journey in life to do it right. A healthy and happy marriage is profoundly beautiful but hard. And there's one last problem with it. Let me just tell you. And it's in our wiring. Our corrupted human nature makes marriage really hard. In fact, on our own, impossible. And just so you know, we've all got bad wiring. Our wiring leads us to make different choices, become different kinds of people, do different things, but we've all got bad wiring. We're all messed up. We're all falling short of what God's created us to be, and and it happens at birth. Look at Psalm 51, verse 5. David, a king in the Old Testament, said, Surely I was sinful at birth, messed up at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And look at what it produces, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, They lead to sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry. We worship the wrong things, witchcraft. And think about how good good this is for marriage. It leads to hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Now build a marriage on that. And yet that's what we're made up of. The reality is that our nature is selfish and marriage demands uh, unselfishness. And this is a problem we can't solve on our own. And here's the good news. It's the very problem that Jesus came to solve. Jesus didn't come to give us a nice little religion. Jesus came to totally transform our nature from selfish to unselfish, from incapable to love to loving. It's true marriage is hard, but it can be experienced when we truly allow God to do it in us. Then we experience its beauty. This whole series is going to, I hope, help us to understand the issue better, but this weekend, here's the truth that I want to leave you. A healthy and happy marriage does not result from marrying the right person, but from becoming the right people. Now, you're not going to hear a more important statement about marriage ever. Everyone I talk to that's having difficulty with marriage, the the wife of the young man whom is so close to our family who's throwing him aside and having affair after affair and, and trying to find something else, do you know what she's looking for? The right person. The person who is going to make marriage come easily and naturally. The person who's going to make her happy and more fulfilled. The person who's going to bring it all for her that she's missing and make life everything she's always dreamed it to be. She's looking for the right person. She's not going to find the right person. Because marriage isn't built upon finding the right person. Marriage is built upon two people becoming the right people together. 
And look at how God says it in Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start with verse 21. And you should commit this verse to marriage no matter what relationship you're in. To, to memory. You could commit it to marriage if you wanted to, but you should probably commit it to memory regardless of the relationship you're in. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. Every relationship demands that each person submits to the other. Marriage at a high level. So this is what God says. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And a lot of women bucket that. And I get it. It's been abused and mistaught and it's just been ridiculous over the years. But it's simply saying, in all relationships, the partners have to submit to one another. So wives, it's true of you. You have to submit to your husbands. You have to give yourselves over to your husbands. But then it says, husbands, you have to submit to your wives. And he gives actually added definition of what it means for husbands because husbands suck at it compared to their wives, right? Husbands, you need to submit to your wives. You need to, here's what I mean by that. You need to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. For this reason. Interesting. We don't leave father and mother and get married because we found our soulmate. We don't leave father and mother and get married because we found the ideal spouse. We don't leave mom and dad and get married because we finally found the person who's going to to bring pleasure to our life and nothing but pleasure and make life easier, totally easier, no work on our part. We leave mom and dad and we get married so that we can then invest ourselves and give ourselves entirely to another person becoming the right person and so that they can invest themselves in helping us to become the right person so that together we can become the right people. And what this passage says at the very end is, and when they do it this way, the two will become one flesh. And I want you to see the word become. It's not easy. It's not natural. You don't just wish Mount Everest summit and get it. You, you have to take the journey. And it's hard. You become one. If we're going to experience the profound beauty of a healthy and happy marriage, then we have to become the right people. And becoming the right people demands a couple of things. We'll tease these out more in the future, but if we're going to become the right people, it starts by each and every one of us giving our lives to God. I mean, that's where it starts, by genuinely giving our lives to God. And I have to tell you why. Now, listen, this is really, really, really important. The problem with marriage today the reason we're trying to make someone or find someone who's our soulmate, the reason we define the ideal spouse the way we define them is because we're trying to replace God with a person. We're trying to replace what only God can be and what only God can do in our lives with a person. Because once we've sinned and pushed him out of our lives... We've lost what only he can be to us, fullness within, the one who shapes us within, the one who completes us within. And now we're trying to find someone on the outside to do it. And no, during the puppy love stage, you might have the illusion that they're the one, but as soon as you get into real life, they won't be the one either because no human being can complete you, but God can. And so if you're ultimately going to experience a healthy and happy marriage. You become the right people. And this is why two people investing spiritually is the best way to go about it, though you can go at it alone, even in the context of a, a marriage. 
The best way is for two people to start investing in giving their lives totally to God. Look at how God says it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Submit totally to God. Genuinely give your lives totally to God, holy and pleasing to him. In fact, this is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't buy the world's views. Don't live the world's philosophies. Don't conform to that pattern, but rather let Jesus do what he came to do. Transform you by the renewing of your mind. And when you give your lives totally to God and allow him to transform you, to change your very nature from selfish to unselfish, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, what God created us to experience. It's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. If we're going to experience the good, the pleasing, and the perfect part of what marriage is meant to be, it starts with genuinely giving our lives to God. I believe one of the real problems with marriage these days is that people really are trying to replace God with another person. It won't work. Because look at 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. We struggle in marriage in all of our relationships until we experience God's completing love. And when we experience his completing love, then we can start learning how to love, becoming the right people. Have you experienced that love? The Bible makes it clear how. In John 1.12, it says, here's how you experience his love. You receive Jesus. That's why he came. He lived the story we failed to live and Then he paid the penalty for our failure, for the story we wrote. He took the end of our choices. He died on the cross. The wages of our sin is death. And then he rose again to give us new life. And when you receive him, believe, put your trust in his name, God gives you the power to become his child, to to experience his love. That's the starting place. And just before I give you the last passage and we get out of here, I really want to encourage, if you would, just for a minute, no matter who you are, where you're at in your journey, if you would, just pray with me, would you? I just want to pray for you. And as we bow in prayer and you consider your relationship with God, I want to encourage those of you who know you're a child of God already, you know you've experienced his love, let me ask you a question. Have you been living each day by genuinely giving your lives to God? I mean, submitting to him? If not, that's what you need to fix. Seek first God's kingdom, his ways, and all this other stuff will fall into its proper place. But there are some of us here who you've just never even received his love for the first time. Maybe you're watching online and you've just never received his love. I want to encourage you. Pray with me now. Just take my words in this prayer and make them your expression to God. In your heart, just say, Jesus, I want to receive you. I want to experience your love so I can love. I mean, I've sinned against you. I've disobeyed just like Adam and Eve. But I believe, Jesus, when you died on the cross, you died for me. And I'm asking you to forgive me. And when you rose again, it was to give me new life. And by faith, I'm asking you for that new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before I give you the last passage and thought, I, I want to encourage you, if you just prayed with me, let us know. We have this thing we've put together that can help you take next steps in your relationship with God. It can tell you how to take those next steps, but we just need to know you prayed with me. So if you're in one of our live services, we give you these programs with 
the beautiful couple on the front. Uh, you might not know, but this couple, he's an elder of the church here. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Um, and inside is a connection card. And you just fill it out, and on the bottom, check that circle that says you prayed to receive Jesus for the first time. And then as you're leaving our live services, there are boxes at every exit. Just throw it in those boxes, and we'll do the rest. We'll send you that information. And if you're watching on demand online, just hit the What Next button, and we'll do the same for you. But look at the last two verses I give you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty, vain, worthless conceit, but in humility... Think about this in context of marriage. But in humility, not me marriage, not my fulfillment, not my personal freedom, not my autonomy, but in humility, consider the other better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In fact, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then it goes back to Ephesians 21, the whole foundation of all relationships. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. Once we genuinely give our lives to God, if we're going to have a healthy and happy marriage, become the right people, we need to genuinely be giving our lives to our spouse. Not looking for them to give us our freedom. Not looking for them to give us our autonomy. Not looking for them to give us our personal fulfillment. But us looking to help them become the right people. Us allowing them to help us become the right people. And in so doing, we start experiencing marriage. A healthy and happy marriage is profoundly beautiful, but hard. But when you do the work, when you take the journey, you find that the trip is unlike what anyone ever says about it. It is awesome. You didn't marry the right person, but together you're becoming the right people. And when you do this, you finally breathe the rarefied air of reaching the summit of the Mount Everest of marriage. And when you're there, looking at the panorama, at the landscape, enjoying what God has given you, it's then and only then that you can feel and say with God, now this really is good. And that's marriage, God's way. I hope we'll all experience it. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.